Welcome to the Lovejoy Hour Light. Uh, I'm trying something a little new today. I'll explain in a minute. But first, can I thank our lovely sponsors, Cooker, 100 Degree Boiling Hot Water, straight from your kitchen tap. For more details, go to cooker.co.uk. Cooker spelled Q-U-O-O-K-E-R. So, a, a new thing. Now, I thought um, every now and then I would do a bit of a midweek podcast. I used to do them, quite enjoyed doing them. Um, I thought I'd throw one in every now and then, but these might not be an hour long. I thought maybe they'd just be a little bonus. So I sort of said I might call them Lovejoy Light or Lovejoy Short. So I spoke to Mark, who many of you know, who I do my midweek marks with and things like that. And he said I should call them Lovejoy Briefs because it sounds like pants. <laughs> so I don't know. I might call them Lovejoy Briefs. Not sure now. But I heard about this book written by uh, Katerina uh, Costula, um, and it's called... Uh, hold successful meetings and it kind of got my curiosity going i then learned that uh katarina was an executive coach she goes into companies to coach uh management how to be leaders well i couldn't resist having a little chat about that let's meet her and find out how companies are changing here's katarina oh hi katarina how are you thank you for joining me today thank you team i'm very well Good. Um, I think the, f- the first thing we should do uh, is to get to know you a bit, find out actually what you do. I did it. I said in my intro how you how you coach uh, management and uh, you go into companies and do things like that. So can you explain, you know, how you got to that position and, uh, and what you actually do? Sure. I coach pioneering leaders. That's how I call the people I work with, either one on one coaching or leadership teams for clarity. I to have better clarity of where you are, where they are, where they're going. And also when I coach teams, how they can be more cohesive, how can they work better together? How can the leaders have better leadership skills, influence and communication? And before that, I was a global business leader at Google for eight years. And I think halfway through my Google career, I went to do a coaching training and I fell in love with coaching. And I came back to, to the Google job and I started doing both business and sales as I was doing at Google and being an internal coach within Google and starting coaching people externally and coaching entrepreneurs. It was a slow transition from business and sales to coaching. Yeah. So now your company is um, it's quite big, isn't it? I was on there the other day. You've got loads of coaches working with you. I do, yes. It's around uh, 10 coaches. It's still, I, I still consider it a, b- a boutique, but yes, it's it's grown quite a lot. Okay. What is uh, I, I work, Obviously, I, well, you're not obviously, but I work in television. And so I'm sort of really, I, I realized when I was reading stuff on you and looking stuff up and trying to work out what's going on, I'm really not aware of what's going on in business anymore because I'm just, <laughs> I'm just somebody who goes on telly and talks. So what is a global business leader? What does that mean? That was your job at Google. What do you actually do for that? I was managing some of the Google's biggest clients. So it, it, it was a very fancy title, but in reality, I, I was in the global agency team and the advertising agencies were buying advertising from Google search and YouTube advertising for their clients. And I was managing the global relationships. At some point, my portfolio was a billion dollars. They were spending, investing with Google. And I was responsible of managing that relationship and the strategy and what we were doing together. Make sure that, sure that partnership was uh, going well. 
Right. Is there a is there a, a way you can learn that, or is it all just um, stuff that you've learned along the way? So I do have I do have a business education, right? Let, let's start with that. I did go into the sales, and it was a sales strategy and business development altogether in that role. But I think what makes you successful is less what you know. Yes, you, I was speaking to CEOs. I needed to understand what drives them and I needed to understand business. But what makes you successful, I think, is more your soft skills and your EQ. And that's where the transition to coaching came from. Right. How you have empathy and understand what these business leaders, who are your clients, what do they care about? And they care about their clients and mm. how you're sensitive to that, right? I think that's what makes you successful in managing such a big partnership. What's EQ mean? Emotional intelligence instead oh. of IQ, which is more the the harder intelligence of solving right. problems. Okay, I think I might struggle in that, <laughs> that department. So, where are you actually from? Because obviously, Google's a global company. Where are you? You've obviously got an accent there. Where Where did you grow up, and how did you end up working here? I grew. I'm Greek. I grew up in Greece. I studied the first degree in Greece, and then I wanted to see the world. So I moved out of Greece, went to Spain for three years. And then moved to France and Singapore to do my MBA. And then I wanted to come to the UK because I wanted to be in the center of things. That's how I felt. And it was 2009, which was not a good year to be looking for a job in the UK or anywhere for that matter because of the crisis. So after my MBA, I went back to Greece trying to apply for jobs. It was really, really hard. And I I became really focused that I really wanted to get into Google and that happened so after france and going back to greece jobless i transition in google in 2009 does does uk still feel like it's important out there then because i don't know we're, we're quite down on ourselves these days as a as a country it, it seems how how are we faring especially after brexit what do you think do people still think we're the center of things i've been thinking about that quite a lot recently because almost a hundred percent of my work it was 80% of my work was virtual before the pandemic and I became 100%. And after all these years, 12 years, I, I'm a British citizen now, I started thinking, do I need to be here anymore? Do I need to be in yes. London? So, so you're asking a question that I've been pondering because before it did feel I wouldn't have such a job if I wasn't in the UK. I, I could have it in the US with a multinational company. I did feel, even though I worked in Spain, I worked in Greece, that I needed to be in the UK to be, to have such big global opportunities. It was a global role to have the big global opportunities. Mm. It did feel that a lot of things, a lot of products were coming to the UK first and then to the rest of Europe. Now, and I, I, I know in Greece, the tech scene is after 10 year recession they had is, is picking up. I think now that the remote working is more prominent, I think for the people that didn't, enjoy London, they don't need to be in London anymore. They can be have a global role because of their remote working and be anywhere else. What sort of people wouldn't enjoy London? I love it. It's the best city in the world. <laughs> but everyone listening to me in Manchester is going, no way, Manchester and Birmingham or whatever. Um, in, interesting, when you work for a company like Google, um, uh, I'm going to get onto your meetings in a minute, by the way. So <laughs> don't think I'm not going to talk about that because I do love this. But um, it it's when you work for a company like Google, do you, do you think it's, do you think globally on everything? Because it is such a, like Amazon and, and Twitter and, and Facebook, you're all global companies, aren't they? I say you, you don't work for them anymore, but they're all global companies. Do you think like that when you work for them? Do, do you, or do you 
do you still think in territories and zones? I spent all eight years in a global team. Mm. So I was thinking globally. And I know the people who developed the products were thinking globally. I remember they were saying the product needed to pass the toothbrush or toothpaste test that if we couldn't get a billion people use it a couple of uh, times a day, that was not a worth a product worth pursuing. I, I, I don't know if they still say that. So I, I, I do think that if you're developing products for a big company like that, you need to have a diverse team so they can think globally. But that said, I was working with all the local teams. They were managing my clients in local markets and they could be thinking all about their local market. How can we localize the global product? How can we make it work in our local market? So in order to thrive, you needed to be good at at both. You couldn't just be global because every market is different as well. You needed local people in the ground to localize everything. Hmm. Now, how do you how do you view the way business is going and leaders specifically? I, I'll tell you why. It's because I, I'm I've been working with a couple of um, CEOs recently, and both of them had a little bit of a bragging session online to me about how much they do for their employees. And they were going on about they you know they do uh, health, and then they do lunches, and then one said, "Yeah, and I pay for a holiday." Uh, for them each each year so they get a seven day holiday to europe paid for uh, it's fantastic and then it sort of occurred to me that um this is sort of all come from the google thing where you know i've been for the lunches at google by the way oh my god i i mean i'm gonna have to describe them to my listeners you go into this great big big i mean it's huge isn't it the canteen yeah. it's like a whole yeah. floor and you can yes. get vegan you can get meat you can get the deli section it is all free it's unbelievable there's a bar- barista there then on the next floor my friend took me up to up to two and they were do- doing i think they were doing a cookery lesson or something just for the staff to entertain them and then the same stuff goes on um at youtube as well it goes on everywhere now these companies have come in and they're looking after their their employees so i took this um I took this concept into my WhatsApp group, my friends, and a few of them own companies. And I said, are you providing lunches and holidays and, and whatever and breakfast and stuff for your employees? And they went, don't be so ridiculous. No, that's not the norm. That's not what happens. Uh, the people who are doing that clearly don't know how to run a business. And I thought, wow, the world's really splitting now, isn't it? But it seemed to me like like years ago you would say so I'm, I'm doing a bit of a monologue here but it's really interesting me to the they years ago you'd go i'm going to work for so-and-so because i get a company car and it's a bmw these days are the people going i'm working at google i get private health i get a gym i get lunch paid for and you know blah 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 do you think that's where it's going now employers are trying to look after their employees more i think it worked well for google when I joined, and for many years, they, they were the top employer in the world, receiving 2 million CVs a year. And wow. I remember the day I left, I had to go and say goodbye to my massage therapist, which was heavily subsidized. And I amazing. walked through the gym. The perks were amazing. That said, and, and Google is successful and Facebook is successful. So it was one of the things to attract the top talent. It is not the only thing. And I would, I would go as far to say it's not the major thing. Because in the end of the day, what do people need to be happy? And I, and I remember when I left, people say, what are you going to eat now? That They were people in, within Google that they have <laughs> lost their ability to really think. It was like a mother, right? Yeah. Giving you the food. And, and they thought they, would, they wouldn't be able to survive outside. And I know from being outside, you, you can survive. You don't need the food <laughs> from the company. 
Uh, you just cut out a bit there. So you're just saying you, you were left Google and you could survive without their, their canteen. <laughs> yes. And what's most important for the employees and attracting the top talent is not so much the food or the ping pong table. It is giving them meaningful work, connecting their work to a higher purpose. And it is giving them autonomy and giving them a, a growth, giving them options to grow and get better so i would say meaning autonomy growth is what matters more than food yeah and that's interesting because we come on to your we're coming to talk to you a bit about your book and and i assume this is very connected it's called hold successful meetings it's very connected into um life in leadership because I, I imagine a lot of leadership involves I used to work in production companies and and, and I used to have to take meetings uh, a lot so so I know how painful they can be and how inspiring they can be too but um, I suppose that's part of the job isn't it that meeting is very important for anyone who's leading a team it is it is and the unfortunately the majority of the meetings from what I'm hearing from my clients are not fruitful, they can be boring, they can be inefficient. And on the other hand, when they do work, as you said, they can be inspiring and people feel a sense of belonging and they feel a sense of power because we are part of a team that makes stuff happen. Mm -hmm. So knowing how to have successful meetings, I realize it's very important. What is the mistake most people make, do you think? The first mistake is they have meetings for the wrong reasons. And the major wrong reason is to share information. And unless the information is emotion, will have an emotional reaction, you don't need to share it in a meeting. It could be an email. It could be a recording like we're doing now. It could be a video. It, it, when you bring people synchronously at the same time to have a conversation, you need to, A, not have a monologue, you need to use everyone's brain power. That's why you have them there real time. And you need to have a purpose that's not sharing information necessarily. It is uncovering insights that you wouldn't uncover otherwise if you didn't have the live interaction. It is maybe stimulating each other thinking to have ideas. It is to have a debate and make decisions. These are good reasons to have a meeting. Most of us, though, have meetings to, we don't even know why we're having them. We're having them to check in and give updates and they become boring and we have sit, we have to sit through monologues mm. yeah and you mentioned in the book about uh, people holding um putting in regular meetings every week and they just become pointless in the end they do if you don't know why you're having them if you're having them because they're there in the agenda mm. i know teams that they have regular meetings but they are focused on the meetings they know what they're why they're having them and they, they can be productive. I'm not against having standing meetings, but I would question it. I know companies that have stopped their regular meetings for a couple of weeks and see, do we really need to bring them back? I will question it and not just take it for granted because there is meeting creep, as you know. You, you have the standing meetings and then more come in and then people are exhausted. Like the research shows the more meetings you have in the day, the more exhausted you are in the end of it. So we need to be careful with the meeting creep. Yeah, and now it's gone virtual. You mentioned it earlier. And it's, it's an interesting that because it seems to me that the employers are getting a lot more out of this relationship in the end than the employees. To begin with, the employees were like, yay, I can pet my dog and I can go for a walk at lunch. And, and now, now the employees, I think, maybe aren't having the greatest quality of life 
because they're stuck on their own looking at a Zoom, whereas the employers are going, yeah, I'm saving money on, on heating, lighting, water, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. I keep saying that. I think in the long run, the employers are going to get the best deal out of this work for a home business. I actually really enjoy working with people. I like I like uh, I like going in and meeting people. I think it's really it's part of my job. You know, it's, it's really exciting because I hang out with people who have exciting thought processes and ideas. That's why I enjoy it. I agree. And I think if you have a remote first, you need this at some point. Maybe it's once a month or once every three months to bring people together. There's something on bringing people together physically that cannot be replaced. And also, I've heard, I've read an article about this gap that you have the senior people working from home and they have their home offices and they have their families and they are enjoying it. And then you had people working from home that they didn't have the conditions. They were having housemates and they needed to work isolated in the room, crammed in the room, and they were hating it. So there was also a gap, the more senior people enjoying it more, the remote working versus the, the younger people that they really loved the office and they wanted to socialize. They were not at the phase that they have a family already, that they, they suffered more in terms of mental health during the remote working that was imposed on them. Yeah, a friend of mine was, he's got himself this lovely job in TV, but at the beginning of TV, you, you end up, <laughs> you end up not earning a lot of money. And he said he, he was just doing his job on his bed in a bedsit basically and yeah. that is like it, it worked yeah. really hard to get this job in tv saved all his money and everything and 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 he's doing his job from a bed he said it was horrific so yeah. and desperate to get the offices back open but they're being reluctant and then a lot of the offices are consolidated and gone let's make a smaller office and just rotate i'm telling you the employers are the ones who are going to gain out of this not the not the employees and what is the 4d meeting framework the 4D meeting framework can be the four reasons, the four good reasons of why you should have a meeting, but also there can be steps in the process, steps you can follow in your meeting. And the 4D stand for define a problem or a goal, develop ideas, decide and do. So, as you know, to, to, to make any decision, these are the steps you go through. It's from design thinking. You need to define the problem, develop ideas to solve the problem, decide which one of the ideas you're going to do and then do what you decided. So there are steps in the process, but also I realized, and how did I come uh, up with a 4D framework? I was observing meetings and I was realizing the chaos. Every single person was on a, trying to achieve a different D. Someone was throwing ideas on the table. Someone was trying, usually the leader was trying to wrap up and make a decision. Someone was ironing out an implementation. Will this work? And I was observing this. And I realized the reason why this meeting was a chaos and they couldn't achieve what they wanted to achieve is that everyone was working on a different D. So I realized that if you are in a meeting and you make it clear, now we're going to develop ideas. We're not going to make a decision. I want to hear all the ideas on the table. Then at least you align the people and, and it works better because you don't judge the ideas. They can be more creative. Or when you're in a decision stage, you just say, now we're making a decision and everyone is aligned. So I, I implemented the 4D framework then with my clients and it could be used to clarify why we're here, what we're doing, and it can use, be used to organize a meeting as well. So does it go in this order? Define, de develop, decide, do? Yes. Right. So you, you take it around in that order. Okay. That's, that's a... 
That's an interesting. That's an interesting. Way. You must have had amazing time going in and and do you actually sit in the sit in yeah. companies? Yeah, okay. So you must have seen all sorts. There must have been so many people you've seen who you think they just shouldn't be doing this job. <laughs> Are there? It was. It wasn't around that. I I think. It was always interesting because I, I observe the meetings and then I give some feedback of what, how they could do it better. And the people mm. that bring an, exp, an external expert, they really have good intentions. They really want to, to do better. And also I'm aware that when you observe something, it changes, right? <laughs> I assume the meeting is different because I'm there and I, I mostly did it virtually, which is easier. I turn off the camera, turn, mute myself and let's say, pretend I'm not here, just go, go and do your meeting. But it was so useful for me to see the same mistakes happen again and again. And another mistake, which I didn't mention, is people not defining the problem. Mm. Like one is not knowing why we're here and everyone doing their own thing. But a lot of the times people are trying to solve something without having gained agreement. What are we solving for? And that's something I, I saw in most of my meeting observations. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, had, I held so many meetings years ago and, and then I was in sitting in other people's meetings and I always thought the problem was, and you must have come across this a lot, and, and, it's hard, and, and I possibly was a bit like this as well, is your kind of ego gets in the way a bit. Uh, also, you're the one who's, who's um, I'm, I'm saying hosting the meeting, but that's not the right word. What is the right word? You're, anyway, you're, you're at the head of the meeting and you're, and you're uh, um, you, you, well, let's use hosting. You're hosting the meeting. And you feel like you have to impart a lot of information and talk for a long time because you're at the head of the table when you don't really need to do that. But, you know, that that can be a problem, can't it? Yes, it can, because people might that's when the meetings are boring. People may feel frustrated. They, they, they don't have airtime enough to, to contribute. I would say the only time you need to do that is when there's emotional news. When other good news, let's celebrate and we hit the numbers, everybody, and, and, and you do share the information and then you celebrate. Or when you have bad news, you, we have to do layo. You do it as a leader and you need to explain why you do it. But other than that, send the information via an e email or a video. I'm, I'm all about voice memos, by the way, or recording, or and then use the meeting to die, to to solve problems. Mm. Uh, Katrin, let's just take a quick ad break there and we'll be back in uh, just a couple of seconds. Sure. Thank you, uh, Katrina. Um, uh, so let's get straight on with this ag again. Let's talk about the virtual meetings because in virtual meetings, it's slightly different. In, in, a, in a physical meeting, you're sitting around a table, presumably, or, or in the case of Google, you're sitting on your beanbags or something, <laughs> so, or a slide or something weird like that. But uh, when you're doing virtually, you're all sitting at screens and there's no hierarchy when you're sitting on a screen, is there? Because you, you could be anywhere where, where Zoom decide to put you. Yes. So there are benefits from going virtual i i had a, a client who was pregnant and in her second child and she did say that when she was pregnant in the first child and she had to go to the office she noticed a difference on how people were treating her in the second child which was during the pandemic nobody knew right so there is a benefit in terms of more equality in terms of how you look how tall you are what are you wearing there, there's an equalizer in the virtual meetings some people feel safer if you're a shy person, maybe it's easier to write in the chat that you have more ways to participate and people that wouldn't normally talk, they can write in the chat or maybe you can do a poll and people can vote. So there are a lot of benefits in the virtual meetings. Another one is 
you can have the right people in the table, which you maybe they live in a different country. If you need an expert, you can bring an expert in a virtual meeting. So there are tons of benefits. There are challenges, as you said. There's more interruptions. There's this sound delay. A piece of fascinating research I was reading uh, when I was researching the book about the sound delay is that if there is a sound delay, subconsciously, we trust the person less. Ah. It seems such a long time ago, doesn't it, since we were sitting in boardrooms with, like, screens at the end and those speakers in the middle of the table and you know we're dialing into america or somewhere for a conversation <laughs> it's such a long time ago that it, it the, the explosion of i mean there was skype and then the explosion of zoom and webby and all these other these other um streaming services whatever you call them um what do you call them video services uh, they're, they're just it's just been huge hasn't it it's absolutely taken over our lives it has. And I would say for more than one, more than two people, if you have two people, most times I suggest voice only meeting, by the way, mm. you can go for a walk, a one-to-one can work better when you don't have this intense eye contact. But if you have more than two people, I think all these video conferencing um, tools have been very good because it's, yeah. it was really hard. I don't know. I, you remember those speakers on the table. It was so hard and so non-inclusive. The person that was remote mm. found it really hard to participate. Yeah. The one thing that I think I did well in meetings years ago was I, I made sure everybody took part and I made sure everybody put an idea. And when I was producing a show called Soccer M, anyone who put an idea in, if I liked it, it was going on telly. It doesn't matter how junior you were. Whereas a lot of people in TV like a hierarchy. I, I'm the I'm the boss. It's my ideas. Whereas I was like, if it's a good idea, I don't give a damn. I'll just stick it on telly. I had three hours to fill. So I, I, I still feel like that now. Um, uh, you say in your book that you ensure you have to ensure that people speak up in your meetings. The best thing that I ever invented was I was put in charge of a um, sort of like a, a online meeting at a, at a company I was working at. And I didn't really know how to do this meeting. So I sat in there and the first um, meeting I said, I said, can we go around the room and just everyone tell me something they've seen that is exciting this week. It could be anything, TV show, music, whatever you like. And two people, kids, came up with podcasting. I'd never heard of it before, really. This was quite a few years ago. And I was like, which ones? And it was the classic one. What was the classic one about the deaths and everything? I can't remember the American one. It was that one they were all listening to. And I was like, right, so I'll tune in to this one. And then I, I just then got hooked on podcasts. And it's a beautiful thing of you can actually learn off the junior people because they're, they're seeing a different world from you. And that's the, that's the one thing in meetings that I thought, do you know, I've done really well with that, that, that idea, just to ask people what they're seeing. I found a couple of new bands that I hadn't heard of. And, and I was proud of myself because everybody could input into the meeting when there was no agenda to it. They weren't going to be judged on that. That's fantastic. That's spot on. And it has a couple of benefits. First, that you did it in the beginning. Getting everyone's voice heard in the, in the beginning is important because it makes it easier for them to, to speak later. And also that you ask something personal in the, rather than jumping. Most meetings we jump into work. And asking something personal, it, it creates more comfort. It creates more cohesion in the group. People feel they can share themselves. I think that that was a brilliant way to start the meeting, Tim. Well, if the truth be known, it was a bit selfish because I was sitting looking around the room thinking there's a load of 20-year-olds here. 
what do they know that I don't? And I was, <laughs> I was like, I need to, I'm going to pick their brains because I bet they're looking at more exciting stuff than I am because, because I'm older. And it was so, it was so, and it was, I found out so many good things from it, really great TV shows. And it, and I also learned, which was fascinating, was that, that, that was when I realized people were turning away from TV and going online in their droves. And I, I remember sitting in one meeting and going, does anyone listen to the radio? And there's like half a dozen of us going, yeah, we listen to the sport on the radio and a few people. Are there. And then most of the room were like, no, we just don't tune in. Now. I was like, what? What? And then you realize a lot of young people don't ever bother with with TV or radio anymore. It's all on demand streaming. So so that's the way to go. Um, you talk about reducing um, time wasting in, in, in meetings. How can you do that then? Well, the first thing I would say is protect deep work time as an individual let's start with an individual and then i can um, share some techniques for an organization you need to protect the deep work because otherwise people will book meetings as you know um saying no creating assets i have people asking now my time how how did you become a coach and how did you write a book all these questions and i have written articles that i can point them to these are a few of the tips I share in terms of as an individual, how can you reduce meetings? But I think the most important is already knowing the purpose of the meetings, having meetings for the right purpose, being able to say no, protecting your time and, and using other, other tools. That said, many of my clients have failed to implement these measures because the rest of the organization doesn't. My client might decide, oh, I, I have a meet, no meeting Wednesday and they can block their Wednesday. But if the rest of the organization really has meetings on Wednesday, they will put meetings in, in Wednesday. They will not respect their boundary. So I think if what you do is not enough, you need to work with the whole organization. Or if you're a CEO, you need to think, how can I make sure people have time for deep work? How can I make sure we don't burn them out with the meetings that are ineffective? And you can do the same. If you are the CEO, you can have um, office hours. That's something that has worked because you can have two hours a week that say, everybody can book 15 minutes with my time. So you are still available as a CEO. People can still talk to you, but you don't get in dis dispersed meetings throughout the week that doesn't allow you to, to think strategically. So that's one of the tips. And then I would say in most organizations, having even a Friday morning free of meetings can work well. And you also talk about making sure that you um, start the start a meeting and finish your meeting um, with, with with impact. Um, just I've just got images of CEO starting with a song and ending with a dance. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds impactful. <laughs> what does that mean, though? How to how can you? Uh, actually, did, the one other thing that I learned, and, and it took me a long time to learn this. I was thrown in basically, given a production team, and gone right, go and make this TV show. It's called Soccer Rim, and I was and I was just given it, and it and it did really well in the end. It was just all of us like on the seat of our pants, just just trying our hardest to make the show. And what I, it took me a good couple of seasons um, to learn that you someone needs to make a decision, which is I was the boss, me. Um, it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong, but make a bloody decision because so much time is wasted when no one's made a decision. If you haven't made a decision and you go, can you go off and research that? Can you go and do this? Can you go and do that? Just, just make a bloody decision so everyone can get on with what they have to do. Is that what you find? Absolutely. And there are two, Amazon says, Jeff Bezos says there are two types of decisions, the one door decisions and the two door decisions that 
And by that, he means, is it such a huge decision that we cannot change if it doesn't work? And the mistake a lot of us make is that it is a decision that is reversible, but we spend so much time and we want to have consensus. Consensus can be useful when there is an irreversible decision, right? If there are some decisions that you need to research and you need to get a lot of buying from the people, whether you buy another company or something like that. But I've seen companies for minor decisions, they spend so much time. And that's because they are aiming for consensus versus saying, being clear from the beginning, how are we going to make the decision? Is it a consensus decision? Is it a majority rule? Are we going to vote and the majority wins? Or is it a consultative decision-making? That means there's one decision owner. The decision owner is going to listen to people. Otherwise, why have a meeting, right? If it's a meeting to make a decision, you listen, but then it's clear that this person, the decision owner, it could be the leader, it could be the expert. It doesn't always have to be the leader. Mm. But being clear is the beginning. Maria is going to make the decision. Let's everyone input and try to influence Maria. But then Maria, by five o'clock, will have made a decision or something like that. Mm. Uh, That can improve the speed. And in the end, you know, a lot of the times we don't know. We we don't know the decision. You need to do something, make an experiment, and then figure it out rather than wasting all this time without making a decision. Yeah, making a decision is, is so bloody hard. Because it involves, once you've made the decision, then there's action to be taken from it. So the actual decision-making process is so critical that it, it's, it's a hard part of a job. It's a hard even when you're going, what am I going to have for dinner? Let alone, <laughs> you know, what are we going to bother booking this guest or are we going to run this item or should we edit this together? I mean, it's like, because it creates work for other people. So it's just, it's a really hard thing. One of the things that, that I end up doing was I got decision fatigue after a while and I'd be sitting there really tired and people are going what should we do Tim should we do that should we do that so I started trying to delegate decisions off to other people and it wasn't because I was some sort of genius it was so I could blame them rather than me if it went <laughs> wrong it was like I don't want to I don't want to make every decision go and ask Fenners or go and ask Sheepard or someone they can make a decision and I don't know and I won't take any credit for it but I've I've made some really poor decisions I'm have to say really bad ones so uh yeah it's uh it is it, making the decision is a hard process isn't it All of us have, and I would say if it's an important decision, a tool you can use is conflict, which is very uncomfortable, but creating productive conflict in the team, having people comfortable to have the debate, the different opinions and being comfortable with this debate can help make better decisions because you will have more information brought to the surface. Mm -hmm. But that again is for important decisions that you want to get it right. If it is not what you did delegating sounds great like if if there is someone's job or there is an expert have them make the decision and they will be more happy and they feel they will feel more empowered and you will move faster Mm. there was once a plugger uh who said um approached me and said uh we've got this uh all girl group um they're gonna be (laughs) i'm laughing because i know what's coming (laughs) they're gonna be huge do you want to put them for your show it'd be great to get some uh women they're lively they're fun i said uh, who are they and they said they're they're called the spice girls and i went they're just this is such a ridiculous idea or never work no i don't want them on the show (laughs) step forward about six months they're the biggest band in the world selling pepsi and everything else we're like hey why don't we get one of the spice girls on the show and they're like not a chance they must be big for your show now 
So I, I've made so many poor decisions. Just finally, whilst I've got you here, you've worked with some of some of these amazing companies like Google and Amazon and Vodafone, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think they're really aware of their perception in the in in the in the uh, in, in the in, with us, the, the the consumer? Do they do they really worry about that? Because I you think about Facebook. One of my friends has just gone to work for Facebook and said, "Oh, I feel like I feel like I've just gone to to work on the Death Star or something," you know, because it's like Facebook is everyone's. Really anti them at the moment, and Amazon had a hard time when they were the tax and everything else. Are these companies aware of it? I mean, obviously they're aware of how they're treating their staff inside, but obviously, if you're working for one of these companies, you know what they're doing as a company is reflected on you, isn't it? Yes, my gut reaction hearing you asking that question is that yes, because I remember all the trainings we had in terms of how important it is we get it right, all, all the compliance, all the being careful, because you know, when you work at Google and the fear you have is the public perception, that's what can bring a company that's on the top of their game down. So from one side, we were aware of the danger of people's perception. On the other side, because you are inside, a lot of people have drunk the Kool-Aid as well because you're so exposed to the good parts of the culture. And this, all these companies, they wouldn't be so successful if they hadn't the good parts of their culture, if they hadn't hired competent people. And also they're doing a lot of good. There was the Google organization. There's millions or hundreds of millions to charity and you're more aware of it when you are inside. So it's a yes and no. Yes, you are aware and you care about the perception because as you said, it also will reflect in your career, but also you're a lot more exposed to the good stuff because you're inside. Yeah. Well, I don't expect you to answer this because it's probably not fair, but with the Google, I remember reading once that they were more trusted than the BBC over here, that that they, they had that for a while. I don't know if they still do that. Whereas you look at Amazon and Facebook and um, Starbucks because of their, well, Facebook because of their data protection stuff and, and Amazon and Starbucks because they didn't bother paying their taxes or didn't want to and, and, and then still suddenly the perception of those companies just went down massively. But I always think that must impact heavily on the management and staff by making these decisions because they're working in these companies, knowing the public are sort of sneering at them because they're they're not perceived as being the, the good guys. That's Yeah, that's true. It, it, do, it does take a toll. Hmm. On the other side, I would think, because I have so many clients that will come to me and say, can you help me get a job at Facebook? Right. It's still considered a prestigious employer. So it's, again, it's not as simple. It's a yes and no, because, and they're prestigious for other things. They have one, some of the best engineers in the world. So I think, yes, the, the reputation is important. And if the reputation is damaged, they will attract less good talent. And that's a problem. On the other hand, I still get so many people that will come to me because they want to land a, a job in the, in the tech industry. Yeah. Exactly. Don't get me wrong. I'll take a job at Facebook if they're listening. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I can make a lovely coffee if Starbucks want me. So um, there you go. Listen, thank you so much for joining me. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. It's uh, It's been interesting. Your book is called Hold Successful Meetings. It's a, a Penguin uh, business experts book. And if people want to uh, contact you about about leadership coaching, where, do they, where should they go to? My website is theleaderpath.com. Mm -hmm. And they will find a lot of resources and guides and a lot of stuff there. And uh, I hang out quite a lot on LinkedIn. Katarina Costula on LinkedIn. I will be happy to connect. 
Yeah. And so what's the final takeaway from this? Make sure your your staff are having good meetings and it's meaningful work. I suppose that's it, isn't it? Make sure it's meaningful work. That's the thing which struck me. Yeah. I don't think I can end in a better way than that. Meaningful work. Love it. Mm. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you.